This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Hey there, I'm Casey Finey, host of Creative Control, and we're actually in production for season two of the podcast. So while we're hard at work bringing you more of the people and trends shaping the creator economy, please enjoy this throwback episode. To know me is to know that I'm a fanboy of film and TV composers. In the history of this podcast, I've interviewed Max Richter, Danny Elfman, Mark Mothersbaugh, and for this throwback episode, I'm resurrecting my conversation with Nicholas Bertel. If that name sounds familiar to you now, it's because he's the Emmy-winning composer behind the theme song for HBO's hit show Succession. But back when I chatted with him in 2019, he had just had his big break creating the score for Barry Jenkins' Oscar-winning film Moonlight, which is still one of my favorite scores of the last decade. Listen to this conversation and then go listen to some of Nicholas's work. It's fantastic. I'm Casey Finey, and this is Fast Company's Creative Conversation, a podcast where we tap into some of the most creative minds in film, TV, music, and beyond. We're tackling the mental roadblocks these creatives have encountered on projects or moments where they felt stuck in their careers. By diving into the problem, finding out how they overcame it, and the lessons they learned from it, you'll hopefully have a clear blueprint on how to manage your own creativity. Over the course of his relatively short career, Nicholas Bertel has become one of Hollywood's most sought-after composers, and for good reason. His scores for films including Moonlight, The Big Short, Vice, and If Beale Street Could Talk aren't your average film scores. Nicholas experiments with unconventional techniques in order to capture abstract themes like love or even finance. In our conversation, Nicholas explains how he went from managing hedge funds on Wall Street to being an Oscar-nominated composer, and why it's important to stretch the limits of film music. So, Nicholas, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me here. So, the story goes that when you were five years old, you saw Chariots of Fire and heard that iconic theme song. And I want you to take me back to that moment. What was it about that combination of score and cinema that pulled you in and kept you in? Because it could have just been some pa- passing fancy of like, Mom, I want to take piano lessons. But you obviously stuck with it in <laughs> a pretty significant way. So what was it about that film score and just film scores in general that really pulled you in? I've actually I've spent a little time, you know, going back and imagining that moment because, um, you know, it's it's clearly at the very beginning of some of my earliest memories. Um, I think there was something, you know, first of all, Vangelis' score for Chariots of Fire is amazing. Oh, it's amazing. Like, like it's what? just incredible. One of the best. Oh, yeah. And there's something, there's this pulsing rhythm, there's this inspirational um, melody. Mm-hmm. Um, and and clearly, it's the coupling of that music with the picture, with this story um, that, that's, you know, set something off in me, I guess. And uh, I don't remember the exact moment or the, 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 you know, whatever was that first impulse for me to go to the piano, but I went to the piano and, you know, was just trying to figure out, I think the first thing I did was do that sort of, na 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 Gotta start somewhere. And, and maybe because it's so, like, you know, anyone, pretty much anybody, you know, clearly I didn't know how to play the piano, but but I could do that, you know, right yeah. away I could just, you know, you repeat that note and, um, and then you try to figure out the other stuff and, um, 
And it just it just took me in uh, right from that moment. Yeah, and it just became this outlet for me where I would constantly go to this piano. And as soon as I started playing around with it, I asked for piano lessons. Yeah. And um, I started, uh, I remember I wrote a, a piece. I would try, you know, there's this piece I wrote where I was taking clearly inspiration from Chariots of Fire. I wrote a piece that was the same chord, sort of playing like da na na, you know, but right. it was a chord. And then I played another chord on top, and it sounded kind of like, I don't know. I thought it sounded like train, like a train on train tracks. So I remember <laughs> calling calling it the train symphony. I was going to say, <laughs> you did know? you call it like just these two carts of flame? How close? Yeah, no, it was. It was I call it. We call it the train symphony. So I was like, you know, my dad would always be like, "Oh, play the train symphony." I'm like, "Cool." It was these two chords, you know. Oh, it's so um, funny. But yeah, it was. You know, I was really into that. I was um, when I was like six, and so I was obsessed with Les Mis. I was obsessed with Phantom of the Opera. I was that kid in school who, you know, at like the Friday morning assembly would play the Phantom of the Opera on the piano. <laughs> you know, that was my move. I was like, I would play that whole, the whole, yeah. So I was. You say that kid as if it's that common. Well, there's like, the, you know, there's always that kid. The feel, well, you know, there's always that kid in school who's like, I'm going to play, you know, who plays the piano. Right. You know, okay. there's that, yeah. So I was the kid playing the piano who played Phantom of the Opera, you know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that was how I got my start. And then I, I, um, I, as I was seeing lessons, I I got really into classical music mm. and um, loved Mozart and and Beethoven. Um, Mozart has this set of uh, variations uh, that he wrote on the Twinkle Twinkle Little Star yeah. theme, which is so beautiful. And so that was one of the first pieces that I also became obsessed with. So I would always play these twelve variations, and uh, yeah, that was that was the start. But but you're right that it was it was film and music in this magical kind of alchemy that that first inspired me. Right and. You know, your path to becoming a film composer was somewhat linear and somewhat not because you studied at Juilliard <laughs> yes. to be a concert pianist, I believe, when you were a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you went to college at Harvard, you majored in psychology and then went to work on Wall Street managing hedge funds. <laughs> so, you know, you have these kind of two tracks that you're going on. Yes. And I mean, what eventually brought you back into the fold of music? Because, you know, you 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 could have stayed on that Wall Street route. Well, what's interesting is I always was doing music throughout these periods. You know, there was never a part of my life where I wasn't playing music. I think there was it, there were just different phases where I was able to do more than others. Right. So, like, um, you know, Your rap group. Yeah, for my, well, my that was actually for me being in that our band was called the Witness Protection Program in college, and in college, uh, my my two focuses were. Uh, the Witness Protection Program, which was our instrumental hip-hop band with two rappers and and spent a huge amount. I mean, we played all sorts of colleges and, you know, clubs in New York and but all over the nice. sort of the Northeast. Um, we our, our high point was we opened for Jurassic 5 and Black Alicious. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah, that Wait. was our that was our high point. No, we were trying to get signed and it was a whole th- and we uh we we, I have a photo of of that night in my uh, in my studio still, yeah, because that was our that was like our you know that was it was an amazing moment. But I was so I was in this band, and then it was in college too, where a dear friend of mine, Nick Lavelle, who tragically passed away a few years ago, um, he was a brilliant director who, when you know, we're both in college, and he was making a ten thousand dollar feature film, hmm. and he just asked me one day, hey, have you ever thought about composing for for movies? And I said, yeah, I, I always have, but I've never had a movie right. <laughs> to, to score. So we spent the next, you know, three years um, experimenting with what that process actually looked like. So, you know, so much of this story, I think, of all of our lives in a lot of ways is, is these circuitous paths where we, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. And right. for me, at the end of college, our band was breaking up and uh, this film wasn't coming out right away. And 
I ended up meeting someone who himself was, uh, had gone to Harvard and was a composer. And he hired me just, he said, you know, we'll find something interesting for you to do here. Uh, and I learned to trade currencies. and As one uh, does. As we, <laughs> as a whole, but what was fascinating, it was this, it was kind of this fascinating education where, um, you know, I, I ended up learning a lot about uh, international finance. And um, during, you know, at, at night I was, you know, I actually gave concerts for our investors and would, uh, I, I was scoring friends short films and, you uh, you know, so it was this con- this kind of like dual life in a way where I was, uh, you know, I set up a studio, I bought a piano, I was, you know, constantly doing music, and I don't think I ever realized how, you know, w- when or how. Uh, the f- you know I could do film music because I think you know arts and entertainment as 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 an industry and as an idea um, it you know it takes a while it's a it's it's a long term uh, uh, sort of investment itself uh, in yourself and in your interests uh, that enable you to do that and um, but as I you know as as years you know passed I I realized more and more how sad I was not following that full time and so I you know I quit my job and started making this pilgrimage out to Los Angeles to wow. um, to full-time devote myself because I knew that, uh, I just knew on a very personal level, like I wasn't happy not doing that right. with every ounce of my being. And um, so that, that was how that happened. But, you know, there was never a, I think actually sometimes in life, you know, when you're not able to do the thing that you love, it makes you clearly want to do it even more. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, I appreciated so much how ama- what what a blessing it is to be able to do those things and you do it so well and i feel like you know when it comes to the work that you do in film because you've composed for uh for adam mckay and barry jenkins and it's the work you do is so interesting because it's you're often tasked with creating something from such an abstract idea like what does joy sound like what does finance sound like <laughs> so when you sign on to do to score a film you read the source material, you read the script, and then what? Like, what's your process? So that's another really good question because um, music is such an abstract art form. In a lot of ways, maybe it's the most abstract. You know, it's, the, oh, it's these frequencies. You know, it's right. it's sound pressure. You know, it's frequencies in the air that um, that in combination create emotions. Yeah. So it's this very very. Um, kind of crazy phenomenon that that there are these you know that there's sound waves that actually like translate into very specific complexes of emotion, and um, I think that you know there's an early stage, and I love getting involved at a very early stage because um, you know the key for me at that moment is I'll read you know if there if there is source material I'll read a, the book or mm-hmm. for example or you know I'll read the script, um, but talking to the director is the is really the first thing I'll do where. Um, you know, so much of what of what I do is exploring these feelings, but having a focus to that. Yeah, and that's one of the beautiful things I think about films is that every movie represents its own universe, mm. and I strongly believe that every movie, you know, should have its own sound. Yeah. And and we don't know what that is. You know, the director does. None of us really know what that is, right. and we don't even know until later in the process once we've experimented and the movie itself kind of speaks back to you you know when you put a piece of music up against a, the picture and it doesn't have any music there before you put a piece of music up something happens yeah. and it starts saying something and the movie itself changes and the bizarre thing is the music changes too like your perception of even what you're hearing changes right and so that process is is a much later phenomenon so at that early stage you're talking about um 
you know, I hear, let's say with, with Barry, you know, on, on Beale Street, you know, uh, I said to him, you know, what are you feeling? And this was before he shot the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first thing he said to me was, he's like, I'm, I'm hearing brass and horns. And, you know, we talked about this idea of the 20th, mid 20th century New York and jazz. Right. And, and that was it. Just that was the conversation. And so I, you know, I said to myself, um, in a way it's about creating these feelings, I guess. And I'm, and that book has a lot of them. A lot of feelings. <laughs> and you're trying, exactly. And you're trying to imagine, you know, at that stage, there's no movie yet. Yeah. You know, so you're trying to imagine to yourself, well, what might I feel like when I'm watching this movie in my mind? Right. And so I remember, like with Barry, I wrote these, um, I wrote some pieces where I was experimenting with trumpets and flugelhorns and French horns and cornet. And I had this idea of uh, exploring the types of harmonies that ex- that exist in mid-20th century jazz, mm-hmm. but writing them out in a way where maybe they're almost classically kind of written out. Mm. And um, and so I, I put some of these ideas together, played them for Barry. Barry was really into the music. And then when we put it up against the, the early sequences of the movie, it just was missing stuff. It wasn't quite right. And Barry, you know, and, and, and Barry was so excited by the music, but it just wasn't Right. right. And that's the fascinating thing with the process where we, none of us know. And, yeah. and so the excitement, I think, for, for us is this, this, this journey of discovery, literally, where we, you know, we put it up, we see it's not great, and then it's like, okay, well, what is it? What, what are we missing? Are we in the right emotional universe? Is it the sounds of the instruments? And, what? and we discovered it was um, strings that we needed coupled with the brass and the strings, the this, this sound of cellos became the symbol in the movie of love. Yeah. And it was this sort of interplay between the two where you have strings and, and the brass are almost in a dialogue with each other. And that dialogue transforms over the course of the movie. Right. And that was the thing where, you know, I'm taking guidance from Barry. And what I love about it is I'm looking for things that I love but the ultimate test is always what, you know, in this case, for what does Barry feel? Right. And the amazing thing with Barry is not only does he love movies and love music passionately, but he knows what he's looking for. And in the sense that when we're there, when we find it, we're there. Right. And, he, and he knows. I feel like you know what you're looking for, too, because, you know, even within that movie, you know, I was reading somewhere that when you read the part in the script where Tish and Fani, the two characters uh, at the center of the story, they they can finally, they see hope in getting their apartment. And so it's this really joyous, beautiful moment where they're just like kind of shouting to this guy in excitement. And you you read that in the script and you you basically said like, oh, I have, the, I know what I want to do with this scene. So I'd love for you to talk about that because oh, I think yeah. you're, that how you interpret text into music is really fascinating to me. Thank you. That that was a very powerful moment when I read the script and I saw that where, like you were saying, for the first time, Tish and Fani feel like they're going to be able to get this apartment. And there's this gorgeous scene where they start yelling to the sky out of joy. And, um, you know, I, I guess part of what I spend all my time thinking about is these sort of these ideas of, you know, how how might I translate musical motifs or chords or melodies into emotions and and being sensitive to, you know, what chords am I drawn to when I hear something? How do I feel? You know, I mean, maybe it's almost like, you know, there's that that kind of metaphor of like cooking. You know, there there are certain, you know, foods and flavors and spices that that clearly translate into different 
tastes and flavors and you right. know and i think with music it's there's a similar element you know um Quincy Jones, I think, has talked about, has used those you know, metaphors yeah. of like cooking and flavors, you know. And but I think it's very apt. Where um, in that case, there was, I believe that melodies, the shapes of melodies have, um, you know, the shapes have a meaning in a way. And there was something about Tish and Fani yelling to the sky that felt like, you know, Barry had said brass to me. And I was thinking to myself, okay, what if there was a trumpet that yells to the sky you know mm-hmm. that itself the melody is going upwards and, right. and 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 it's shouting upwards and what they what might that do and um you know there were these chords that i started exploring that i played for barry and um the beautiful thing with barry is he's just you know i'll say oh this could be cool what do you think and he'll always just say show me yeah he's just like show me and so i'll i'm like okay so i put this together and um there is that thing where it works and it feels connected um and it feels right and uh, I think, you know, again, on a very personal level, that's what you're always striving for is those moments where it's almost like a physical, uh, you know, acknowledgement in a way. Like when I think when some of those things really work emotionally and with the film, you feel it, you know, you almost you get like a shiver down your spine when something really, really connects. Right. And um, Barry and I were were very, there, there are moments in our in both Moonlight and in Beale Street where, you know, where we find something together like that. And and it's always together. I mean, that's the really beautiful thing. I think we can share that experience. And um, film music is so collaborative. You know, I don't do it by myself. Like right. Barry is a hundred percent my guide. Where you know, without him, direct, literally directing me, I wouldn't know if what I was doing was right. right. And and that's the fun thing. We get to share that together. We share that moment of discovery, and it's exhilarating. I mean, I you know, these, those moments are some of the most profound moments in my life. Wow. And I would imagine that, you know, with a movie like If Beale Street Could Talk, you know it's a love story. It's a love story. It's a romantic love story. It's a family love story. It's just there's and to me in my in my mind, I would I would imagine that that's a little bit easier to wrap your mind around about, you know, what how to how to how do you how do what does love sound like? And strings, that's that's what a lot of people go to. But when you have a movie like The Big Short or Vice, like it, it's a little like how do you how do you make the sound of finance and how do you make the sound of Dick Cheney's life? <laughs> so, I mean, when it comes to these ones that are a little bit more abstract than most, like yeah. what's your approach for those types of movies? That's that's no that, no that's that's great because I I think um, it's it shows you how these there are different things where, for example, with Beale Street, it is love. You're saying, you know, and each movie has each movie has a wavelength. Mm-hmm. I think there's like a certain like 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 frequency that that movies like vibrate at, where like emotionally with the story, with the characters, with the world, and a lot of the you know whatever the sound that's going to be the sound that that amplifies that or resonates with that to use that metaphor is there is something that I think it'll feel you know what I'm always look always looking for musically is there are certain types of scores or sounds in a movie that feel like they're just in the movie they feel yeah. like they're part of the movie and when it doesn't work um you know I, I've sort of said before that I feel like it like sits on top of the movie mm. you know and where you're sort of like it looks it, it's just not gelling yeah so so the way that I'm thinking about it is like what's the sound that just feels like it's in that world? And with the big short, I remember literally one of the first things uh, Adam said to me was, he said, what's the sound of dark math? <laughs> what's dark <laughs> mathematics? And, you know, that I That sounds have, like uh, a rabbit hole you can just fall was, down in your head. It was, a, yeah. So I start. you know, for some reason I had this idea of, well, I wanted there to be 
uh, a combination of elements where it would feel, on the one hand, stable, but mm-hmm. on the other hand, unstable, because right. I was thinking about markets, and that's kind of what markets are. You know, they seem... They seem stable. They seem like they're places for investment. But then there are moments Jesus. of total bottom falls chaos. Out and, yeah. Exactly. Total <laughs> chaos, you know, in a collapse, in a financial collapse. Right. And so th- uh, for whatever the reason, there was this idea I had of like six interlocking pianos that at times would all be sort of synced up. And then at times they would feel like strange. Yeah. And um, I put this sort of demo together and sent it to Adam and... Um, uh, this is before he had hired me, and then he was like, "Okay, you're hired." <laughs> so, so that was the that was the one. But but you're right. I mean, I don't. I think every movie really is a completely different um, emotional, but also intellectual journey. And there are always those times where you know you're thinking one thing, and the director might be thinking another thing. Yeah. And those are these cool opportunities where you're sort of like you know realizing like that that happened um, you know on Moonlight in a couple of very specific places where I remember thinking to myself, "Okay, I." I think we're going to feel this and then and then Barry would say oh actually I want to feel this. Yeah. And those moments were very revelatory where I was like oh I never even hmm. thought about that. Right. You know. So um so that's why it's so interesting cuz you're learning yourself as you go. More of our throwback episode of Creative Control after the break. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. I can't say this enough. Like, people listening, Nicholas is having quite a year. You have the score for If Beale Street Could Talk and Vice, you know, working with directors that you've worked with in the past before. So what, what is that? Cause I would imagine that you develop kind of a shorthand and you've and you've mentioned before very accurately so that you're not doing this alone. So when it comes to that collaboration process, do you find it's roughly similar across the board or do you find yourself, uh, you find yourself kind of bending when you're working with different directors? Like what's that about? Because you, like I said, you've worked with two amazing directors sure. on multiple films, Adam McKay and Barry Jenkins. So what is that collaboration process like with, with both of them. Yeah. Um, I've, I, you know, my own process of working with directors has evolved over time. And I, I think that in some ways, um, the big short for me was a very, uh, you know, uh, impactful experience because it was on the big short that I came to this view that the only way to do this was to uh, ha- have this incredibly strong close collaboration mm-hmm. with a director and uh, and the post team in general if possible you know mm. so on the big short I you know I obviously working with a director is always a, a collaboration but on the big short Adam actually um, invited me to LA and uh, I lived in his pool house that summer <laughs> and uh, and so he you, yes, literally we were, we were living there and and uh, and he invited me into the edit room you know wow. and I remember thinking to myself how fascinating this was to be sitting there where Hank Corwin, who's this legendary editor who edited The Big Short and Natural Born Killers and, you know, uh, worked on JFK. You know, I mean, he's done so many amazing projects. And sitting with him and Adam, and we would just sit in the room together, and I would bring my keyboard there, and we would just try stuff out right there. So, you know, Hank would be editing a scene, and he'd be like, you know, I'm kind of feeling this. And I would say, well, what about this? And I would literally just bring my computer over, and we'd, before it was even put into the system, I would, like, play something next to the picture. And 
Hank has sort of likened it to the way that we were like playing jazz together. I was going to say, it sounds like a jam session. (laughs) That's what it was. And I had never had that experience before. So once, once I had that experience, I was like, oh my God, this is the only way to do this. Because in, you know, five minutes, you can explore ideas that over email or Mm -hmm. over distance would take you three weeks, four weeks, five, if, if ever, if you'd ever get there, you know, we could iterate in a way where like in two seconds, we'd be like, oh, that's not going to work. Of course not. But what about that? Exactly. And, um, from that experience, you know, it was actually about three or four weeks after that, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe four weeks after that, that I met Barry. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was that summer. And, um, and I remember, uh, you know, over the course of that summer, getting this very, very strong feeling about that process. And when we started working on Moonlight together, I remember right at the beginning, Barry said to me, you know, so what's, how should this work? Like, what is the best process? And because I felt so literally, I said to him, I was like, so here's what we're going to do. <laughs> I was like, we're going to work in my studio together. I was like, right. can you fly to New York? And can we just be together? And he was like, yes. And so we did that where he would, um, on Moonlight, he would, you know, they'd be editing the movie in LA Mm -hmm. and then he would fly to New York and we would spend days together at a time. I mean, he would just sit on my couch in my studio. We would order Shake Shack. We would, (laughs) you know, we would, you know, I have a, you know, big screen. We'd put the movie up there. We'd watch the movie together and I would, and I would play him things and, and we would just see how they felt together. And, um, it was over those, Days that you know, I think it was so. It was really for me those those reformative experiences that that experience on Big Short and on Moonlight, where I just saw what was possible with that. Mm-hmm. And now I don't, I don't think I could do it otherwise. Yeah. You know, it's such a, um, it's such a joy when you have that immediacy, mm-hmm. right? With the with the uh, both the experimenting and with um, with the experience of being in close collaboration. Definitely. And what I love particularly about your work is that you're not afraid to go to unconventional measures to find the right sound. Because when you did the score for Moonlight, you took uh, the chopped and screwed method (laughs) or technique that a lot of rap artists use, and you applied it to this orchestrated score. And with If Beale Street Could Talk, there's a lot of, there's really effective use of distortion in it. And I would love it if you could kind of break down one of your favorite examples of turning a regular piece of music on its head like that. Oh, totally. You're so good at it. Oh, thank you. Well, you know what? What's interesting is um, I remember on Moonlight, for example, um, early on, this is those er- the power of those early conversations, um, Barry, right away from the beginning, knew that he wanted real instruments and mm-hmm. he wanted this idea of like, what if we had this classical yeah. sound to the score? Um, but it was early on that, you know, he was telling me about his love of chopped and screwed music and, uh, you know, which is that process where you take a recording and you slow it down. Right. And when you slow it down, the pitch goes down and you get this really enriched deepened beautiful texture it like it like literally sort of stretches the music apart you know and uh and and we had that idea early on of like what if we did this to my music what if i wrote music recorded the music and took my own recordings and did that to it um again one of those ideas that you know sounds cool but might not work (laughs) and then but the amazing thing was with moonlight it did work and it felt connected to the story and it felt connected um to what to emotionally what we wanted um and what was interesting about that actually was going back to you know being in my hip-hop band the reason that when barry sort of said to me you know how would we do this um it was all those years in working in audio production and and making you know 
hip-hop beats, for example, that I knew immediately how to do that. Yeah. You know, it was... Um, and so I think there's all those years you spend where you're just in the studio and you're just obsessed with something yeah. and you're in love with something and you are... You know, I used to spend every hour of the day just, you know, playing around with my equipment and 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 trying to figure out how is how does that track get made? Like, right. how do we... You know, so... Um, so Having a facility, I guess, with that technology was really helpful. And on Beale Street, I think a, a clear example of that is um, is the sequence where Daniel and Fani are That's speaking. my favorite scene in the movie because of what you did with the oh, music. Because, I mean, obviously Brian's performance as Daniel, Brian Tyree it's Henry, is, is a phenomenal. But the, what you did with the music add, added so much. So thank you. please tell us about so that. Was, <laughs> I just well, have to interject because no, it's no, such no. a great scene. <laughs> well, thank you. That, that was a very... That was a really um, uh, sort of a, that was a revelation, I think, for us too, uh, because it was a turning point in how we looked at the mm-hmm. music in the film. Um, up until the, we had focused on that scene, the music that I'd been writing for "If Beale Street Could Talk" was the sound of, let's say, love and joy. You mm-hmm. know, it was this 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 brass and string universe. Um, and in this scene, Daniel, um, uh, played by Brian Tyree Henry, uh, has you know, he's come out of jail and he's talking to the character Fani, played by Stefan James, and he's talking about how he, the horrors that he underwent, and he's talking about the injustice. And it's an incredibly powerful performance, set of performances. And there's a moment there where I remember turning to Barry and I said, you know, I want to feel that. Like, I want to feel that horror. And at, when we were first looking at the scene um, on the record player in the room there is Miles Davis's Blue and Green playing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, we just sort of said to ourselves, well, what if score did come in, but what would that score be, you know? And kind of in that same way that I was talking about with that idea that we're just almost playing jazz together. um, I was like, let me try something. And Barry's like, okay, do your thing, show me. (laughs) And I I took the Miles Davis and I just started running it through this very long-tailed reverb. Mm -hmm. So it started, you know, I didn't change any note of that Miles Davis, but it just started... Uh, feeling perceptually like you're going into a different state of mind, yeah. you know? And um, I took, talking about distortion and, mm-hmm. and audio morphing, I took the cellos that you hear when Tish and Fani are first making love earlier, so this mm-hmm. music that is meant to represent joy. Yeah. And I took that and I bent it and I distorted it so that it actually sounded hellish and yeah. it sounded like... Um, like it was this horror coming up through the floorboards, almost it was low and this rumbling kind of grinding sound. And Barry looked at me and he said, how can we, ha- let's break this music. Yeah. Like, how do we break it? And that became this metaphor for all the moments of injustice in the film. We focused on taking the moments of love and of beauty and of joy and harming them. Right. And that was our musical metaphor for what injustice is. Wow. And that, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's not... There's a lot of amazing film composers out there, but I don't know of many that really think about music the way that you do. Because I think in many respects, it could just be a very kind of straightforward score, like strings, horns, all that stuff. But to take certain scenes and to bend and break the music the way that you do, I guess I guess my question is, I mean, like what what room, if any, do you do you think there is for more innovation in film composition? I think we're at a very exciting time mm-hmm. um, right now because not only 
are there more people finally getting the opportunity to be a part of the film industry, mm-hmm. and in particular, film music? Um, and there's so much further that that has to go. But I think that th- you're already seeing voices from all over the world who are bringing their art, which by by definition is bringing more yeah. fascinating music into the fold. So new ideas that you know, moving away maybe from some ideas that have taken hold over time you know yeah. that's how you get that's how you get evolution in the sounds mm-hmm. um, and in the art but also I think we're at a moment in technology where I've always had this feeling that you know instruments are technology you of know course. a piano is just this crazy machine made out of wood and metal and right. string you know and and it's a piece of technology and I feel that in the past 20 years audio technology and the technology we have computers um, enables so much experimentation and I'm just really drawn to that. Um, You know, I use a program called Ableton Live where you can take audio and it's, it becomes like Play-Doh in your hands. And, um, and for me, I think one of the fascinating things is making recordings and, you know, recording something, let's say in the real world and then taking it and experimenting with it in this technological digital world and seeing what happens, you know, because um, I, I certainly don't know what's going to happen when I do those things. And sometimes you do these experiments and you're like, that's very strange and I don't know what that <laughs> is. <laughs> but there are times where you do it where you're like, wow, that's that's a sound that I really, that sound hits right. me a certain way. This may sound like a ridiculous question, but how do you hear music? Just music, when you're not working on anything, when you're just, you know, in... Uh, listening to the radio or listening to like, cause I feel like people like you, you know, this is obviously, you know, your profession, this is what you do. You, you spend a lot of time thinking about, uh, creating music, deconstructing that music. So how, how do you hear music? Like, is it, can you just enjoy it as is, or do you just get in your head and you're just like, oh, they used this and they did that. And da, da, da. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I think I go through a pretty immediate process of analysis in every piece that I hear. <laughs> like, because also, like, that's what I've always done, you know? I yeah. mean, maybe since Chariots of Fire. Right. The first thing I did, for whatever the reason, my brain was like, I want to figure that out. Right. So when I hear music, I mean, yeah, the first thing I do is I sort I sort of just unconsciously, mentally, like, you know, deconstructed in a way. And I'm like, I know, okay, I know what that is, you know, uh, whether I like it or not. Because I think, yeah. you know, um, Fair. one of the things, I mean, the the best thing is, you know, is not thinking about those things actually, because mm-hmm. I think even, you know, with movies, with music, I mean, the you know, you want to lose yourself in things. You want to get into that state of flow where it's not about, you know, I think with every art, the intellectual elements are fascinating, but that's not why we make art and that's not why we listen to art. Mm-hmm. At least, certainly not for me, you know. Um, I think those things are beautiful and fascinating, but I think art is about a human emotional experience. Yeah. And so for me, I think that maybe after I've analyzed something <laughs> in my head, I think I'm going, I'm trying to find what moves me in something, you right. know, and, I, and there are certain musics that just for me, that just hit you in a way. But just like with with the film process, I mean, I think that when you're making things, your thesis is, if I feel something, I hope that others will feel that too. Definitely. And looking back at your career, you know, has there ever been a time where that communication was hard for you to get to? Because I would imagine, I don't know what writer's block or <laughs> composer's block is for you, but, you know, like, we, like, we, like we've been discussing, like you really are tasked with 
doing doing something that's really tricky, like making music out of music itself is abstract, but then you're making music to the tune of something abstract like finance or right. all these things. So if is there a particular score that you found really hard to crack? There was a period of time where I was writing so much music, mm-hmm. and I remember getting into this sort of rhythm where, you know, when music, when writing music just becomes a habit yeah. and it's natural to you all the time, um, it loses the fear associated with mm. failure, I think, right. when you're just doing stuff, right. you know, and you're not, you know, that voice in your head turns off. You're not saying, is this, you're just like, no, I do this all the time. I write music. Like, right. I love this, you know? And for me, I think um, those were the moments where personally I first started thinking of myself as a composer because, you know, when you're growing up and you, especially if you have a classical background, you know, there are these like superhuman figures of yeah. the past, like Beethoven's a composer. How could I possibly be a composer? <laughs> like, there's no way. But I think it was in those years where, when you're just doing a lot of it, mm-hmm. um, that you start saying, well, maybe I'm a composer because I write music all the time. I mean, technically, maybe, yes. <laughs> you know, and, but, but still, it's hard to like yeah. wrap, wrap your head around that. But I think that those experiences um, have sort of, uh, they maybe in a way have steeled me against the um, potential like creative pitfalls yeah. to some extent. Like I feel um, there are certainly, I think on a writing level, I often don't have a fear of, um, can I write something here yeah. or what, what, you know, I think the, the challenge with film composition is much more about what, what is the right sound? Mm. You know, once I know what right. the, how I know, I feel I know how to do, but the mystery is the what, yeah. like, you know, and also the mystery is the where, Yes. like yes, in, yes, like yes. in movies, you know, where do you put music? Right. It's less like a writer's block, you mm. know, and more of a, it's almost like a big picture, almost like philosophical questions sometimes of like yeah. what is right for a moment. Those are the challenges, I think. Right. Oh, God, I wish I, I have so many other questions, but I feel like we can just talk about this forever. <laughs> so if you could leave our listeners with one bit of creative advice, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, there's something over the years that I've thought about a lot uh, and, you know, talked to friends of mine and actually originated with talking to my bandmates about this where um, – I think when you're writing something, um, there's always this question of like, you know, what do we do? You know, if it's not, if it doesn't feel right, if it's not working, what do we do? Mm-hmm. You know, do you push through it or do you, you know, how does that work? And I remember we had this very, this will sound very obvious, but we had this sort of like set of rules. Right. <laughs> where okay. we would say to ourselves, okay, if it feels good, keep going. Right. If it doesn't, stop <laughs> <laughs> you know what the greatest things are often the simplest things that was, and it was like when we came up with that i remember we were like oh my god <laughs> this is amazing <laughs> if so if there's any advice that at least works for me is you know if i'm feeling something when i'm writing i, I keep with it because it feels good you want to yeah. keep doing it and if i'm not feeling something just go go take a walk just go have a cup of coffee you know yeah. don't and don't worry don't worry about it. Just you'll part. come back and something else will, will happen. Nice. Ah, Nicholas, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. It's so great talking to you. That's going to do it for this throwback episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you're in the loop when our new season drops in the fall. See you then.